following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. He's a <laughs> he's a pretty special guy, Roy Rogers, and I don't know if we have an equivalent today. He was a king of the cowboys back in the day, and everything he did was with a smile, and everything he did was with uh, acclamation. Everyone liked Roy Rogers, and I don't think that people today are known for that. People are known today because people don't like them or something is bad. They've made mistakes, and we try to show a, a spotlight on people's errors. Well, this guy had none as far as how he's being presented. And one day he was in uh, in a shopping mall with his family when he was 64 years old, just minding his own business, having a great time with his family. And some some guy came up to him and started screaming and yelling, critical and and mean and nasty. And then he he threw a pie in Roger's face. And then he ran off like a tremendous man that he was. So Roy Rogers was there with his family, and of course at 64, he had a, his children were grown, so his oldest son took off after the perpetrator, and he administered some cowboy justice, which Roy would never do, but his son was quite happy to do that, and no one ever carried this at all. It was not front headline news, but it was just a very small little article, and I thought to myself when I read that, who on earth, I mean, what kind of human being would not like Roy Rogers? Boy, there's critics all over the place. If Roy Rogers is not free from criticism, then who is? There's another really interesting article that I read where there were a couple of taxidermists who were together, and they were walking down the street, and they stopped in front of this big plate glass window into a store, and there was this owl perched on a little stand, and both of the taxidermists were saying, man, that's about the worst piece of work I've ever seen. And the guy says, yeah, that, that's so unnatural. Look at the way that the feathers are unbalanced and the eyes don't even look like they're real. A the guy must have got those things crooked. And after they finished all the criticism, were feeling really thrilled about themselves. The owl turned his head and blinked at the two taxidermists. For some reason, reality and criticism are in two different worlds. And we're never at a loss for the number of critics who exist no matter what the reality is that we are trying to find. Now, some of you who are here are probably completely innocent of this, but probably totally free of any kind of criticism in your life. And that's probably uh, unusual for you. I mean, uh, it's uh, most of us here, but the few of you who might be an exception to that have never faced that. And I I just want you to know that I'm glad that God's given me the privilege to teach this lesson today because I'm the king of responses to critics Whenever I'm driving on the road and there's a real jerk on the road and he cuts me off and cuts other people off and he's speeding and ignoring everybody's good driving habits because they got to get someplace really fast, I, I'm, I'm the best one to give them a response. Or if I'm at a store and there's somebody who cuts in line and, and I say, excuse me, but there's a line here and it's behind us. And they give you some kind of nasty critical comment and they're, they're very harsh with their words I am the king of knowing how to respond, give a retort, write, write correct according to their criticism. My own problem is timing because I never think of that until two or three days later. (laughs) And then my great skill is I'm always mulling it over so I can prepare it well and say it just right. 
Usually the critics are the kinds of people who have something as an agenda that advances itself, takes the rest of good people off their balance, and then causes good people to always question what in the world they're doing, when their world as critics is usually an expression of a life that's torn and facing tremendous pressures and difficulties. The life of a critic is an awful life to live. But somehow we have to deal with them as a reality in the routine of how we experience life. And Jesus Christ was someone who was not an exception to that rule. I mean, if they could throw a pie and be critical of Roy Rogers, man, I tell you, people can be critical of Jesus Christ. I don't know why we would think that we should be able to escape the critical reaction and response and nastiness of people who are around us. But so often we experience that to such a degree that we either get into a mode of just trying to defend ourselves against the criticism, or we actually shrink back from trying to even be a part of the life that God wants us to live so we don't have to face that anymore. Whether we shrink back or whether we just get defensive are both options that we probably ought to say to ourselves, those really aren't real possibilities of what God wants me to do in my life as I live this life for him with the purpose of trying to accomplish his calling in my life. I don't know every one of you with regard to what God's calling is in your life, but there is a certainty that as we watch the life of Jesus Christ go through four quick episodes, where in each and every one of those episodes, we see him facing the critic, the person who is against him, the person who is opposing him. Jesus Christ doesn't just get defensive. Jesus Christ does not shrink back but he actually continues to accomplish his calling as well as to respond to the critic in order to throw them off balance with regard to what feels that negative, nasty expression on their part. What we're going to find out today with regard to this whole business of criticism, how Jesus Christ handled it, and if we want to become more like him, that maybe his example can be something in our minds that we can take with us as our one of our tools to respond to the world in which we live. There is a passage of scripture that we're going to be focusing our attention on as we go through this um, matter of the the book of uh, Mark. And so if you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, we're going to go through this passage of scripture, and it's uh, pretty amazing to watch Jesus Christ in action. If If I were there, I would have been maybe one of the disciples and standing behind Jesus as you watched him take on the critics who are trying to derail him from functioning according to God's calling in his life. Uh, Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the IRS collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In this first episode, when Jesus Christ is experiencing the negative as well as his own ministry toward those who were coming toward him, 
It is a tremendous lesson in comparison and contrast. I'm uh, struck by how open Jesus Christ was with his life. Anybody who wanted to know Jesus and get to get get any answers, he was not hard to find. And that is just an introduction into this particular event, but it's something I think it's worth us observing. If we want to find Jesus, or if we run across people who want to find Jesus, he is not hiding. He's not hard to get a quote from him. It's not difficult to hear his answers or his suggestions with regard to how we want to live our lives. It's also interesting here that Jesus' purpose was to teach the word to all. He would not be deterred from that. He's not there to give an answer to the critics on why in the world he does this or why in the world he doesn't do this. But he's just there to make sure that the word is brought to the lives of people because he knows people have immense needs. So as we go through this particular section of Scripture, it's it's fascinating to me that as Jesus Christ continues on this particular journey, he's now going to engage the life of a person who's not too popular, and that's a tax collector. The tax collector in this day and age only had one very simple job description item on his contract, and that was this was how much money he was supposed to collect to turn into the government. That was it. How he got it? was absolutely of no consequence. How much he got above that was of no consequence. In fact, it was suggested that whatever he collected above that, he could keep that as his own personal salary. Now, you talk about a system of payment with regard to any kind of commission with that kind of loose endeavor, and it is absolutely fraught with all kinds of graft and evil, wickedness and selfishness. Well, that's exactly what happened. The government didn't care how much they took for themselves as long as they got what they wanted. So these tax collectors were known for being selfish, overbearing, and overwhelming with regard to that kind of collection. It's no wonder that they were considered unpopular, and there's no wonder that no one really liked them. So most of us here probably have at least one friend who worked or was working with the IRS. Probably, how many of you guys have a friend with the IRS? So you, you all do, they just never tell you. That's the problem. <laughs> so when, when I sat down and, and a number of times with my friend from the IRS, he was pretty high up, and, he, and I would say, well, how do you deal with the, the fact of your unpopularity? He says, I, as long as I know that you love me, Bruce, I'm good. <laughs> I mean, we could joke about it because he knows that that's common. Now, if you associate with somebody who is known to be unpopular, people cast a disparaging light on you. So if there is a social bias against a certain group of people and you hang out with that group of people, people will then say, well, we don't want to hang out with you. Guilt by association. But we have a conflict there, don't we, gentlemen? Because God wants us to bring the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone. And if we shrink back from that because there's a group of people that the rest of society doesn't like, that they might disassociate themselves from us, because we engage these other people, we've got a major problem against our initiative that is short-circuited before we ever even get started. Now, if you can think in your own mind here, as we live in the city of Houston, where in the world are those group biases or group prejudices that we really don't want to be known to be a part of these people or friend to these people because others might think poorly of us? So as you consider those possibilities, it is an amazing phenomenon. 
Back in the day when uh, AIDS and HIV was becoming rampant across the world and everyone was afraid of it, I had a student come to me and say, uh, uh, Dr. Fong, I've, I've got a friend that I just met this last week. And I says, well, it's great. And he, he says, I'd love to bring him to class. I said, fabulous. You're more than welcome to bring a guest for cat class. We're, we're always looking to, uh, for a chance to recruit. And he says, well, the problem uh, is I met him in the hospital when I was there doing my part-time work in the emergency. And I said, okay, that's no problem. And he says, well, the reason why he, he came in was because he was diagnosed as positive for HIV. So he has AIDS. I said, oh, okay. So why are you telling me this? He says, well, I, I thought it'd be a good idea for let you know that if I brought somebody in who had HIV AIDS, that probably you should know. I said, well, thank you very much. And he says, can I still bring him? I said, sure, you can bring him. So he brought his friend to class, and you could tell a guy when he walked in, he was, I knew all my students, and he wasn't one of my students. And so he sat with um, one of my students and invited him, and he sat in the back. And the guy says, oh, come on up front. He's, and he says, I will sit in the front. No, 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 we'll sit in the back. There was a self-consciousness about that presence of him and what he knew he had. So we had a great class and a great time. The class was dismissed, and people were filing in. I walked straight up to my student and said, so is this your guest? He says, yeah. And so I stuck out my hand, says, welcome to class. And it's one of those amazing moments in life that are kind of freeze-framed, and then they go in slow motion. He looked at me. He looked at my hand. He looked at me. He looked at his friend. He looked down at my hand, and he reached out, and he gave me a fish handshake. You ever get a fish handshake from another guy? (laughs) But with certainty and confidence you know that you could do an immense ministry in the life of someone who's self-conscious. I grabbed his hand, and I shook it firmly, because I'm glad you're here. And I hope that the hope that we spoke of in class would be something that you would find personally. And when I let go of his hand, he looked at his hand, and when he looked up, he was sobbing. I mean, just tears were flowing down his cheeks. And I thought to myself as I walked out of there, I said, God, I, I think that's what you wanted me to do. So whatever it is that I might be afraid of, you just take that. You just take that, Lord, because I think that ministering to him just at that moment was what you wanted. Now, gentlemen, there's, there are people today in 2014, not like way back then when we had that fear. We have other fears today. And it might be because somebody else has a different faith or religion that we know is false. It's not how we judge them. It's not how we might be afraid that others might judge us. Because we're not after a political or ideological objective. We have one particular goal in mind, and that is to be a representative of Jesus Christ to present his love and his good news to whomever God brings into the circumference of our influence. And if the modern news or if the world system has shifted our values so that we hesitate doing what God wants us to do in the lives of people because of fear, because of prejudice, because of bias, who are we listening to? That's exactly what's going on in this particular episode. And when the people who watch Jesus hang around with a tax collector, they begin to judge him for who he associated with regardless of the message that Jesus Christ was presenting. 
Now, when you start to think theologically and biblically and logically through that particular kind of scenario, man, oh man, we just shake our heads and say, may I never be the kind of person who lets the news short circuit what I am called by God to do for people who need the good news of Jesus Christ for eternity. Now, that's something about what critics do, isn't it? I mean, critics sort of make us shrink on the inside. We all have felt that. Good people feel it inside when someone's angry and they're ranting and there's no reasonable way to respond to them because we are reasonable, we are rational, we are mature, we are based upon, we live our lives based upon facts. So when someone gives us a really hard time, it's easy for us to feel that shrinking inside and it's not so much for that moment, but it's for what happens later on. Uh, Red Auerbach was a fairly famous coach, and uh, referees that came out to the game were always ready whenever they were having to call an Auerbach game. And the Celtics were out on the court. Some foul occurred, and, and Auerbach was out there on the floor and in the face of the referees. And he was in the face of the referee, and you can see the resolve in the referee. He's not going to change his mind. He's decided in advance before he called that, that that was, a, that was an honest call, and Auerbach was going to get in his face, and they had determined in their mind in advance. In advance, they determined in their mind not to, not to buckle under Auerbach's ranting and raving. Auerbach finished, and the referee went back to the game. Auerbach went back to the bench. His assistant coach, who was brand new, trying to learn everything he could, went up to Auerbach and says, why, why did you protest that call? It was clear. We were wrong. Our teammate, our, our player was wrong. Why in the world did you argue that? Auerbach smiled. But I wasn't arguing that call. I was arguing the call to come. He was so critical because he wanted to intimidate the referee to hesitate for the next call. Not that one. These critics, they have us nice people down to a science. And if we don't realize that we become the victims of them in order to, for them to perpetuate what they want to accomplish selfishly in their own lives, we are really missing it. So gentlemen, whatever it is about your Christian faith that makes you hesitate to share that faith, don't. If it's the opinion of people, if it's the values of the world, don't. Remember what Jesus Christ did and how he responded. He goes on here in the next episode, and it's a pretty fascinating one. And Jesus Christ uh, gets to this particular juncture. Now, in verse 18, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? One of the great techniques of critics is comparative criticism. Not just their opinion against us, but us being pitted against somebody else they, they set up the scenario. In logic, that's called straw man. They set up a scenario where we cannot win. And it makes us look bad. It makes us feel bad. It causes us to be hesitant for the next time we're in a similar situation. That's exactly what they're doing here. Jesus answered in verse 19, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. He says, we're not talking about mourning here, guys. We're talking about celebration. If you can't see that this is a time to rejoice, you've got a bigger problem than what you're trying to criticize me for. Jesus Christ took this to a higher level and to a bigger picture than these critics would have ever thought of going. He took them out of their game. 
And he set up another scenario to them that was bigger than their straw man, illogical fallacy. And he presented them in a situation where they suddenly were feeling uncomfortable. Hey, did you recognize that? I didn't recognize that. Jesus says we should have. I know, he missed it. Verse 21. Now, verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Who in the world would do that? If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours a new wine into new wineskins. Jesus Christ is saying to these guys, you're old, and your system can't even repair itself. And if you think that I'm going to take the time to try to help you repair what is already broken, but you've bought into it, you've got another thing coming. Critics live in a world that doesn't work except for them. And the only way in which it's going to have any advantage whatsoever, it's because criticism makes the individual feel good when they compare themselves to the one that they're criticizing. Now, gentlemen, one of the greatest ways to fight against that is to enjoy other people who are enjoying new life. That's why here at Warrior's Heart, when you band together with other guys who say, eh, I just don't want another Bible study. I, I want to do something that's going to make a difference in me so I can make a difference in this world. So when you face your colleagues today, and when you face the people that you're trying to make a sale to, when you're trying to deal with people that are going to provide services for you in your profession, think of yourself as, I am the personification of Jesus Christ here for all these people. Not just to be really good at what I do professionally, but to be Jesus Christ personified for all of them. And when that particular scenario happens, then remember how Jesus Christ lived his life here. You're looking at broken lives who have no solution for eternity. All they have is a possible solution for today and life in this world. God has given you new life so that you can enjoy it for sure. But now when you watch other broken lives trying to find solutions and options, and they have none, that's when you look for that opportunity to build into their life and to show them what God has shown you. That's all that Jesus Christ is saying here as he deals with the critics who say, yeah, you're a goody two-shoes. Yeah, you think, you think you're better than the rest of us. Yeah, this Christianity religious stuff, I've heard about it. It's not going to work for me. My life's too complicated. Ah, it's about new wine and new wineskins. Not trying to like make an old broken life, not trying to fix it with new solutions. That, that never works. But watch what Jesus Christ could do for you and change life and make it new forever, for eternity, for you. It's not about how well we argue to convince someone to believe in Jesus. It never is, never has been. Apologetics is great. It's a great intellectual exercise. It's very important for some of us to do it really well. But for the average person out there, they're not looking for an argument. They're not looking for something that's logically tight. They're not looking for something that's flawless from the standpoint of reason. They're just looking for something that works. They're just looking for something that makes life work. And when they can watch your life go through all the criticism, all the challenges, all the difficulties, and they still see you strong, when they go through a time of crisis, they're going to remember that. And when they want to reach out and grab a lifesaver, hang on to a buoy before they drown you may be the only lifesaver that they can remember. That's what it means 
to have a warrior's heart to come alongside somebody else and impact that life for eternity forever. The third episode in the life of Jesus Christ that's going on in this um, group of four items, in verse 23, one Sabbath Jesus was going through the grain fields as his disciples walked along. They picked, uh, began to pick some heads of grain. But the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? I can't say that with a very arrogant, pompous word, uh, attitude, but that's what they were doing. He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? Man, you insult the critic by going to his area of expertise, something that they don't know. And wow, you've got them off balance. And Jesus Christ did that very thing. Have you not even read? You're the experts of the law. You, you have the privilege of having this printed. And you have that possession to read it so that you can tell everybody else what's in there because we don't have that privilege of having everybody else owning their own Old Testament. You do. And you've never read this? Man, oh man, you talk about people who are in their expertise and feeling very pompous, suddenly realizing, man, I remember that. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. Once you can cast doubt in the mind of a critic, boy, oh boy, you've got them off balance. He entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread. That was David, which is lawful only for the priest to eat, and David wasn't. And he also gave some to his companions. He shared it with others. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. But when you can talk about this whole idea where Jesus Christ was not only a very gifted communicator, not only able to stand toe-to-toe with the critics, but he also realized that people and compassion toward people was more important than rules. Legalism is never anything other than an attitude. It doesn't have a whole lot of sequence that is logically based with facts and logical tightness of argumentation. It's always based upon an attitude. And it goes well with a person who has a disposition that can overwhelm the lives of other people who are nice. Legalism is never a part of the good news. There's one exception that nullifies the rule that is absolute and something that everyone would accept. Then a legalist somehow has to realize that they either got to move on to another argument or be converted themselves. And that's what Jesus Christ is doing. Care for the lives of people. That is a wonderful thing about Jesus Christ, so powerful from the standpoint of what we can do in the lives of others. To care for even the critic, if they would respond well to the gestures of generosity and and genuineness. Well, we have one last episode here, and there's these things of of four that Jesus Christ helps us with some sense of what it's like to deal with a critic. In Mark chapter 3, verse 1, another time when he, as Jesus, went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And this, uh, the language here, just for specificity, says that, well, he wasn't born with a shriveled hand, but his hand had shriveled. That's kind of the language that's actually more literal, meaning that during his lifetime he had lost use of that hand through some kind of accident. So it's something he was not just born with, but he was very familiar with the process that occurred so he could lose mobility there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Notice the intent and motive. So they watched him closely. Don't you hate that about critics who are always looking for something to criticize us for? To see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Just as Jesus Christ had previously demonstrated that people are important, they are demonstrating that their legalism was more important than their compassion for people. 
We as gentlemen, we as men who have a warrior's heart, never lose your compassion for people because Almighty God will use that in order to advance his kingdom so that lives can be forever changed. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. What a bunch of doofuses. He looked around them in anger. Jesus looked at them in anger. So gentlemen, we would never want to enter into the world of being a critic because God knows if we are more interested in proving ourselves right at the expense of the lives of other people, God never likes that. So then he says here, uh, he was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Now that's a description of describing stone or marble that's so hard, nothing can penetrate it. And that wasn't because of that's the way they were born, but that's the way they made themselves. And that's why Jesus Christ here is deeply distressed because of their stubborn hearts, something that they owned. They made it themselves to be that way in their spirit. He said to the man in response to their stubbornness, that is the stubbornness of the critics, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out, wept, and were converted, deeply convicted over their sins. The heart of a critic, ha, we got him. Now let's go out and figure out how we can kill the dude. Man, oh man, after a miracle, after a tremendous demonstration of compassion, they went out and tried to decide how can we be even more critical of Jesus in the most important way, how in the world can we end his life? Critics are watchful with a bias. So gentlemen, we're not going into neutral territory when we leave this room and head to the office. We are not. We are going there with people who are, who are desperate because of their own difficult lives, but sprinkled among people who are desperate are the critics, the posers of Jesus Christ and what our Christian faith stands for. They are there, and they are watching for the goody two-shoes to trip up. Ha! You say you're a Christian. Well, why are you doing that? One of the most amazing things in this whole business of having a hard heart is, uh, is uh, this, this experience. I, I had never been, when I was, a pa- I was a pastor in Portland, Oregon, I'd never been to a professional basketball game before. And a friend of mine had some season tickets. At, and he says, hey, you want to come watch the Blazer games? I got a couple extra tickets. I'd love for you to come. I says, wow, that would be thrilling. So I went out and I sat in the stadium and we walked past the bench as some of the players were standing. I could not believe how tall these guys were. And it's one thing to see them on TV when the camera's going down, but it's another thing when you're on the ground having to look up. These guys were tall and they were powerful and, and they were stars and I recognized the names and I was in awe and we went to our seats and we sat down and at that time uh, Ramsey was uh, was the coach of the Trailblazers and and uh, Jim Paxson was one of the, the star guards from the past who was then on the uh, opposite side of his career, the far end of the hill. And he was on the bench now playing uh, reserves, and uh, the Blazers are having a little bit of a, a tough time. And so Ramsey thought, well, I'll, bring, I'll do a little mix-up with my talent. And so he called Paxson's number. So Jim Paxson got out there and gave his number. I guess that's what they do. I'm, I'm not a basketball guy. And 
He's waiting there at the table after he'd given his number. And this woman behind me stood up and screamed, Ramsey, don't you dare put in, don't you dare put in Paxson. He's the lousiest player on the team, the lousiest player ever in the Trailblazer history. You're going to put Paxson out on the floor when we're struggling? Now, she was a woman. None of us guys were going to stand up there and say, hey, lady, why don't you shut up, sit down. We paid for our tickets. We don't want to watch the game. We don't want to listen to you. But no, none of the guys stood up and challenged her. And Paxson got out there, and it was amazing to watch this guy with his experience. He took the ball. He was, he was dribbled down the court. He was, he was directing traffic. He passed the ball, and he, the other guy passed the ball, and he passed it back to Paxson. He, he then passed it down to the guy who, who took it and went to, to the basket, and bam, slam dunk. Man, we were all on our feet cheering. Paxson had orchestrated that amazing phenomenon. The whole team was going down court when the other team was trying to get back. You know how you are, and someone scores on you, you get a little angry. And when you're angry, you're a little careless. And he got a little careless, and Paxson got in there and stole the ball, went down court and did a layup, got another two points. We're all on our feet. Yay, yay, Red Trailblazers. And this woman was sitting down. She's the only one sitting down. Everyone else was standing up cheering. And then the ball was coming back down, and Paxson was coming in, and, and he was about ready to pass it. But when he passed it, he, he forgot that maybe there was a guy that was out of his vision, and that other player jumped in front of that pass and took it and went down the court, and he did a layup, and they got two points against the Blazers. None of us reacted, but the woman behind me, she stood up. I told you he was no good. See, he can't do anything right. And it, I just laughed. Here she didn't say a thing when he did those two things that were outstanding and amazing. But as soon as he made a mistake, she was there to be the first critic against him. Gentlemen, when you go to work today, don't worry about the critic. They are there. Don't worry about what they will say. They've got it all figured out. Just be a witness for Jesus Christ. Do not let criticism make you shrink back. Do not let criticism ever let you forget what God has called you to do. The critics will be there, and they will make it hard for us. But this is how God wants us to live, with Jesus Christ as our example, responding to the critics when we can, but focusing on the people who have needs, on the lives of those who really want to hear a message from a living human being like any one of us. Have a great time in your table talk. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.